From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. Remember those lines of cars for food banks during the pandemic? People would drive miles, then wait hours because they were out of work, maybe they had little money, and some of the food staples were just in short supply at the time. Now imagine if it was like that every day, where you'd drive miles because while your neighborhood might have plenty of fast food restaurants, it doesn't have a supermarket. And then what if you don't drive? Well, one in four residents in Las Vegas' historic Westside District are food insecure, meaning they have no or little access to healthy food. The city is trying to change that, and we're going to get into how. City Councilman Cedric Creer and County Commissioner William McCurdy II are with us to answer lots of your questions, but we're going to start with Tyler Perry. He's an assistant professor of African African American and African Diaspora Studies at UNLV. He's also vice president of the African American Intellectual History Society. Tyler, welcome back to State of Nevada. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Great to have you here again. So, first of all, just a little history on the historic West Side District. It's been predominantly black since the 1920s. Why? Yeah, uh, where to begin? This is quite a complex history. I'll try to fit within a a few minutes. But um, essentially, when Las Vegas was established and kind of these competing town sites that were manufactured, Las Vegas largely becomes commissioned as a city due to the railroad tracks that was supposed to connect Salt Lake um, to Los Angeles, Las Vegas being kind of the, the middle point between the two cities. And what we now call the historic West Side began as the McWilliams Town Site, which is effectively a town site where houses and real estate was being sold to to eager people that were moving into the city. But effectively, what occurs, as, as occurs in many cities that were redlined and segregated throughout the United States, is that the train tracks will denote sections of town that people will be required to live in based upon race and identity. Mm. So over a certain number of years, uh, and I say particularly by the 1930s and 40s, as you see this most intensely, is that African-Americans are being forced to settle west of the railroad tracks, which is essentially where the west side gets its original name, which is essentially a dividing line between what is the west side and downtown, downtown being the main economic district where a lot of the economic power is being driven. But what we find is that even if an African-American lived in downtown um, at this point, the mayor at the time, Ernie Cragen, basically threatened to not renew their you know, alcohol licenses or wow. gaming licenses and effectively said that people of African descent can only live west of the tracks outside of the primary economic framework. And by the 1940s is when you start to see very intense forms of Jim Crow style racism impacting black communities within Las Vegas through the Great Migration, as more and more black people post-World War II or during World War II and post-World War II start moving into Las Vegas. Uh, they are effectively steered toward and forced to go to the west side and people effectively will not sell them homes. They will not rent them properties anywhere but within this contained area of the west side. And so essentially, even though there is no real what you'd call de jure type of segregation that's occurring, it's de facto forms of segregation to where the entire white community of Las Vegas had determined that black people could only live in one area of the city. All right. That, that is a great foundation for what we're going to get into. Um, 
You know, today, as I said in the introduction, almost a quarter of the residents in that area are below the poverty line. How does history connect to or, or play a part in the poverty today? Well, the reality of this is that this is by design. This is this does not occur just by accident. I mean, the, the West Side, primarily because it um, was home to a majority African-American population, meant that it, the city effectively ignored its developments. So what, one thing you find within the oral histories and the testimonies of African-Americans who've lived in Las Vegas for a number of years and first settled on the West Side, particularly prior to 1960, one of the things that becomes very clear is that African-Americans come to Las Vegas because they can certainly get higher pay. Uh, it's preferable to the sharecropping systems of the Jim Crow South that many of them were leaving, but they also found that the segregation policies that they left behind were very familiar to Las Vegas, um, nicknaming the city the Mississippi of the West because the policies were so intensely enforced within this area of the country. And what you find are a number of complaints often leveled by the NAACP and local activist organizations to where when you looked at the development going on in Las Vegas as it was expanding in growth in the mm -hmm. mid 20th century, the one place that was not being developed at the same rate or even close to the same rate was the historic West Side. So one of the, one of the things that you might see if you look at images of the West Side in the 1940s or the 1950s is effectively dirt roads, tents, and shacks, um, which basically means that you have an area that borders the you know thriving downtown, the the lights and the casinos, the gaming that attracts tourists from throughout the country, celebrities performing, right across the railroad tracks, you know, a few blocks away, you have people effectively living in conditions that would have been intolerable intolerable by most regards throughout the country. And so African-Americans essentially find that the government is intentionally ignoring this area. And this will also lead to um, devaluation of homes that are built on the West Side. And so it's very difficult for African-Americans to effectively build intergenerational wealth, both through the policies that prevent home ownership in other areas of the city, as well as a devaluation of the homes and the prices that exist within the West Side. And Professor, a big reason we're talking today is because the West Side District has been and remains a food desert. There have been many efforts over the last 20 years that I can recall to change that. Some stores or supermarkets were opened and then closed. Mario's Grocery is there, very small, though it will reportedly be expanding. But, but Professor, for people in that area, I wonder if you could talk about the unique challenges that they face to get businesses like that there or why that part of downtown really hasn't been given, I guess, even in recent times, except for the last few years, and we'll talk about that with our guests, other guests here today, hasn't been given the same kind of attention from government that, um, say, East Fremont or other parts of downtown were given. Yeah, I think the the best way to answer this type of question is one of the problems with certain governmental policies is that they attack one issue in an isolated fashion. So if a area is a food desert, for a number of politicians, you know, the first answer is, well, let's build a grocery store. But you can't detach the realities of food desert from other conditions that also impact these communities, namely that 
you know, educational infrastructure, um, problems with policing and mass incarceration, problems with intergenerational wealth, abilities for transportation. Um, you can't build a grocery store in an area that already has issues perhaps with public transportation or the lack of vehicles available to residents, a lack of employment opportunities, and expect it to succeed. Um, you have to kind of rebuild and, and really reimagine and revolutionize the entire infrastructure of this of this community because for multiple generations at this point, it's been devalued and divested from. And so the solution can't just be, well, let's build a grocery store here and expect that this means that the problem is solved as yeah. far as food is. Now, it might help. It might help for a short term. But if companies are based upon profits and sales, you can't just anticipate that an already impoverished area is going to be able to maintain that particular standard because businesses will close and they will move out. Yeah. They have no loyalty to these areas in many ways. And so you also have to invest internally within the infrastructure and get the community to buy into your project in all ways, not just one. And this is a question more for policymakers. We have two of them uh, with us right now, but I'm going to start with you. You know, you can't force, as you said, you can't force businesses to open somewhere. They're not going to do it if they don't think they're going to make a profit and they'll close if they find, you know, sooner or later that they aren't making a profit. So what do you do to draw businesses or to create an environment where they want to move? Well, I think that the you have to have programs internally is something I had suggested, you know, in my previous comments is that one of the one of the things you find, particularly prior to 1960, before Las Vegas was desegregated through the Moulin Rouge Agreement, is that you did have business owners, black business owners on the West Side. And, you know, you have these mixed income communities living side by side with one another. You have a dentist um, living next to a janitor, for instance, within the West Side. What, what occurs on the West Side after desegregation in 1960 is that those who can afford to leave do. And they might set up their mm -hmm. businesses elsewhere. Uh, they might not patronize the West Side as much. And so income leaves these communities. So the ultimate solution is that you have to find a way to ensure that the money and the income and the infrastructure is staying within the West Side rather than people maybe patronizing here and there, maybe on the weekends. You have to find a way to ensure that the rising generation who is going to come of age on the West Side actually stays on the west side. You bring kind of that economic and educational power to this particular area in order to build it up. And you see this prior to 1960. Um, and one of the reasons that there's some a lot of decay on the west side after 1960 is that the money within the black community largely leaves and the government does nothing to address mm. that problem. It basically leaves the area on its own and just assumes that on occasion they can donate maybe a few hundred thousand dollars here and there to programs without actually fixing the root of the problem in the infrastructure. Really interesting. That's Tyler Perry, Assistant Professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at UNLV. In this Black History Month, we're talking about one history that hasn't changed a lot, and that is the food desert that many experience in downtown's West Side District. In 2016, Las Vegas and the UNLV Downtown Design Center developed the Historic Urban Neighborhood Design Red Redevelopment Plan, which is better known as the 100 Plan. Councilman Cedric Creer, whose Ward 5 includes the West Side District, 
has been pushing the city to actually do some of the things outlined in the plan. And that's kind of a rarity uh, when it comes to government. <laughs> Councilman, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I always say that we're moving at government lightning speed <laughs> yeah. with the execution of the 100 plan in action. Well, it sounds like you are actually getting some of the things done. Yeah, And, and the plan itself, uh, it lists eight needed changes. On page 14 of the plan, and I've, I've actually read this. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. The It says, the historic west side is a food desert facing the highest level of food insecurity in the Las Vegas metro area. And then it proposes a three-story building that would include a co-op grocery store on mm -hmm. the first floor. Partners would be UNR Extension, Three Square, and the Las Vegas Culinary Academy. This plan has been out there for a while now. So, so where is that particular idea? Is it happening? Sure it is. You know, we're moving forward with, <clears throat> excuse me, exactly what we said we're going to do. Um, you know, the 100 plan started out as a 100 plan, and now it's evolved into the 100 plan in action because we're actually doing what we said we're going to do. Um, we've taken James Gate Park, which is closed for a number of years for different reasons, and we are now creating a uh, educational agricultural space there. The first phase of our uh, action to address the food insecurity at James K. Park is the delivery of two 40-foot uh, containers that we have just started growing our leafy greens that we're going to give back out to the community. Um, that was possible because of a half a million dollar grant by MGM Resorts, which we thank them for. You know, they uh, wanted to be a part of the solution and not just talk about it, and they wanted to be a part of it, so we thank them for that. And that is phase one of uh, us addressing the food and security need that is taking place in uh, the historic West Side. Phase two, co-op grocery facility, where we'll grow and we'll work with our partners within the community as well as Three Square to give what we grow back out to the community. And then phase three is going to be a three, four-story uh, tall hydroponic growth facility that will um, allow us to increase our crop production, as well as we're going to attach some housing associated to it for workforce mm. housing in the community. Hey, I, I want to go back to the three-story building that would have the co-op grocery. And you, you just heard Professor Perry talking about, you know, you can't just put a grocery store somewhere sure. and expect it to survive. So what are you doing, I guess, to incentivize a grocery store to come there? And do you think it's ready for that just yet? Well, well sure. Um, look, it's not just a grocery store, I agree. And the 100 Plan in Action lays out our strategic initiative to revitalize the entire community as a whole. Addressing the food insecurity is one facet of that. Workforce development is another facet of it. Um, working to uh, mitigate our homelessness is another part of it. Creating affordable jobs and opportunities is part of it. Creating uh, affordable housing in our community is a part of it. So it all comes together. It's just no one silver bullet. And we have had a challenge with getting a grocery facility into the historic West Side. Uh, going back to Magic Johnson at Edmondstown Center, uh, then the Vons leaving uh, with others coming in, and we haven't had the quality of stores that we need. Uh, with that said, we've had a trusted partner in Mario's Market, which is right on the corner mm -hmm. of Lake Mead and MLK. Uh, they have been not only a great resource for the community, but they've been a great partner within the community. And so the city has made an investment into Mario's Market to move them next door into the uh, old CVS store, which is going to allow them to uh, increase their capacity. They're going to have a, uh, a deli. They're, obviously, they have their food that they always serve. Mars Catfish is famous all around the world. But it allow them to increase their uh, production of in, in, in wares that they give out to the community. Uh, they're going to have a bakery, like I said, and it's going to be a much more improved store.
within the community. Uh, I want to get more into as well the, the plans for James Gay Park. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kim from North Las Vegas, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So I spent some time back in eastern Massachusetts, and one of the former employees of Trader Joe's, I can't remember his name, started a nonprofit called The Daily Table. And they have two or three locations. One of them is in Dorchester, which is a neighborhood in Massachusetts, which is um, underrepresented as far as grocery chains. And it's a nonprofit. I went to the Dorchester store a couple of years ago, and one of my friends is um, one of the managers there. They have a prepared food section. They have a huge kitchen. They have fresh produce. They have formed partnerships with all kinds of food distributors all over Boston. They have diverse kinds of foods for the neighborhoods that they are in. And the cool, one of the cool things is the people who work in the store um, live in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they are, it's well represented. It's ethnically diverse um, as far as employees. Like if you show up, you might see your neighbor who's a grandma, her family, her family and her grandkids might come in and say, hey, grandma, how's it going? It's, it's generationally diverse. It's just amazing. And it's nonprofit. And they have these great partnerships. And I was thinking about like all these great food distributors during COVID who were losing money because the food was going bad and they were throwing food away and gallons of milk were being dumped into fields. And it's like, we can do better. I mean, it seems like sometimes we were just scratching our heads all the time. But, I mean, the Daily Table in eastern Massachusetts hmm. is a nonprofit that is just killing it. Sounds like a really interesting idea. Cedric? Yeah, well, the concept that we uh, that she's talking about, we're actually looking to execute as well with our carb grocery facility. Uh, we just had a great meeting the other day with the Just One Project with Brooke Neubauer and her team regarding something like that. You know, Mario's market is going to be a uh, market that's going to offer many of the things that it has. And, and like she said, I mean, they are... They are community. Uh, the people that work at Mario's uh, live in the community. Mario does a big sponsor of our, you know, our Bowdoin Little League and other things in the community. So, yeah, it is community-driven, which is what I really like. And it's not just the big box stores that are coming in. It's people from the community, within the community, that um, are looking to address this issue and address this problem. And uh, I mentioned before also with this is County Commissioner from District D, William McCurdy II, Commissioner, welcome to the program. Joe, thank you for having me this morning. And I, I want to uh, mention that uh, both you and Councilman Career really have worked to fight food insecurity in West Las Vegas. You recently secured a million dollars in federal funding from Biden's American Rescue Plan to expand Mario's West Side Market, which we've been talking about. Uh, but this is still one of the only grocery stores, maybe the only one in that area, in the West Side District. Is, is that one store enough? Certainly not. Um, But one thing that we notice uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the unprecedented unemployment levels uh, that followed in Clark County's hospitality industry, as well as throughout the entire county, is that um, food security insecurity uh, became the focus once again. And as you know, the caller stated, Kim, uh, with the food co-op, as well as, you know, with the American Rescue Plan dollars in which, you know, the councilman uh, and his office deployed, as well as uh, the Board of County Commissioners deployed, we were able to focus our dollars in areas of the highest need. Uh, And some of those highest need areas were, you know, not only food and insecurity that ensued through the COVID-19 pandemic, but this had been a problem much more before, well before the pandemic even hit. 
So we deployed a million dollars to Mario's market. He is uh, going to utilize those funds uh, to go with the loan that he is getting. Uh, but this is what community do. Uh, you need government, you need public, you need private, and, and you need some philanthropic dollars to really make the change that we seek to make. Uh, so not only in food insecurity are we deploying dollars due to the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, which is now law and we're so grateful for because Nevada received nearly $4 billion thanks to our federal delegation. Uh, but Clark County received nearly $440 million. Uh, and we prioritized as a board that we were going to focus in three areas. Uh, we were going to focus on housing, where we deployed nearly one third of all $440 million towards affordable housing. We're going to deploy money towards, and we did deploy money towards broadband uh, infrastructure and, and connectivity in our, our most at-risk communities, making sure that in the face of future pandemics or emergencies, we can respond and be more resilient uh, when those uh, situations arise. But also, we're going to focus on making sure that we're supporting small businesses and making sure that they have the resources that they need to be more resilient as well. Uh, so we're thankful for Mario's, thankful that we were able to deploy a million dollars towards you know, his expansion of the grocery store, which is also going to increase uh, the workforce uh, in the community. Uh, he's going to nearly double his current workforce, which I believe at this moment is about 30. He's going to go from about 30 employees to upwards around 70. So a little bit more than double. Uh, but what that means is that we have families that are going to be able to do better because now they're working in the community. We have community that's going to do better because they have more nutritious foods. But also uh, we see how again, government and the private industry can work together. And this is just one small example of some of the initiatives that we're taking uh, to combat food insecurity, but also provide a much better quality of life through nutritious foods. Do you know when that might happen? When, when that expansion will take place? Sorry. Yeah, so construction is already underway um, and uh, more is, is happening. And probably this summer, it should be open and, and offering services to the community. You know, I, I have to say that the first person that I really heard talk about food insecurity in our community was Commissioner McCurdy when he was in the state legislature mm -hmm. as assemblyman. And, you know, since those conversations, he really brought the conversation into the community. And since then, we've made a lot of progress in, in moving forward with it. You know, the, the city of Las Vegas has gone into an MRU with a company called Vertical Harvest. MRU. M Memorandum of Understanding mm -hmm. with a company called Vertical Harvest, which, you know, we're looking. I talked about phase three of our Vertical Harvest facility. And uh, they were going to build a 70,000 square foot Vertical Harvest uh, uh, facility, four or five stories there. They are doing work now, similar to this, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, as well as in Maine um, also. And so we're working with them to get this going. You mentioned uh, William McCurdy when he was in the state assembly. And, and uh, assembly, I mean, uh, Commissioner, when you were in that assembly in 2019, you introduced the Nevada New Markets Job Act, Jobs Act, and that would give tax credits to businesses that invest in underserved communities for projects between $300,000 and $3 million, it provides funds for up to 25% of the cost of that project. That's huge. The thing is, Nevada's own website calls the tax credit, quote, Nevada's little-known source of funds. So I wonder if cities like Las Vegas or North Las Vegas are taking advantage of it. Do, do you see things happening with that fund? Yes, and that policy was initially sponsored by then-Assemblywoman Dina Neal, 
Michael oh, was yeah. literally on the forefront uh, of, of identifying ways to support smaller businesses. And coupling that policy along with the Fresh Food Financing Initiative, which is housed out of the treasure, Treasurer's Office, in which we passed in the 2019 legislative session, and I was Assembly Bill 326, the sole purpose of all of these different I call them tools, the tools that we offer to uh, developers to come into areas that have been, you know, um, divested from and, and not really thriving economically the way that they should is to offer them an opportunity to get funds uh, through through these tax incentives to, you know, be able to mitigate costs to their overall construction projects. And you said it's 25 percent, which is significant when you look at the overall cost of construction and the, you know, I guess the inflation that has, you know, uh, you know, creeped, crept into the area. So what we're seeing now and the councilman can speak to this as well because he is also dealing with it real time with this new development that's going to be happening off of Jefferson and D Street. Mm-hmm. And I believe these these tax credits were deployed for that project. But for these credits, maybe it doesn't come to fruition. Yeah, with the whole development of the revitalization of the West Side School, which I have to give a plug, is celebrating 100 years this year. It's the first school in the history of Las Vegas. And uh, we use new market tax credits for the $16 million reinvestment into that school as well. So it is a vital, vital, vital resource that um, many developers are looking into as well, Uh, not only just municipalities. Laura on Twitter has this comment, Mario's is not solving West Las Vegas' food desert problem. We also got an email from Penny in Ridgecrest who says, I agree there needs to be an investment in infrastructure. Bring in the arts. Perhaps the Smith Center can have an outreach or joint program with the West Side. It could be a new renaissance. I visited a museum that was, I think, near the old Moulin Rouge. It's been a while since I visited Las Vegas, but I think the West Side has a library or libraries. Give them funds to promote their programs. I want to welcome Cheyenne Kyle and Tamika Henry. They are both with the collective Obodo. Tamika, Cheyenne, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having us. Good morning. Morning. It's great to have you here. And uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing. You're already working on something uh, helping bring healthy food to the West Side. Talk about that. Yes. So we are the Oboto Collective. Our mission is to provide long-term solutions and support to eliminate multi-generational poverty. And part of our project is we've built an urban farm on the historic West Side um, so we can so we can increase we want to increase access to fresh produce for our community. So we do have a farm. It's on a half acre of land and we will be opening a small green grocer right here in the historic West Side for the community. Well, where will that be? Our address is 1300 C. We yeah, 1300 C Street. We are a block away from the James Gay project, mm-hmm. which we have been proud supporters of as well. I wonder, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that, that uh, Obodo Collective has faced so far, I guess, in addressing food insecurity in that area? Well, some of the uh, biggest that... challenges, there, here's Cheyenne, she's our director. <laughs> of food Hi, Joe, thank you so sure. much for having us. Yeah, go um, ahead, Cheyenne. Thanks, Tamika, uh, for just that beautiful statement and um, just a great introduction to um, Oboto for those who may not be familiar with who we are. 
and what we do. We are a black female led organization. We have been working consistently in the historic West side. Um, and I run this project. This is my heart. This is my baby. Um, it took two years for me to get it to the point where it's at now. And there's definitely still a lot of work that needs to be done, but I have been doing food justice work in this community for, um, that for a few years, for over five years, I believe. So, um, some of the challenges uh, I think that we face it are the ways in which people want to go about solving these issues. We have to understand that um, food insecurity is a symptom of poverty mm-hmm. and it never exists outside of poverty. So um, it was very awesome. It was super awesome to hear everything that um, Professor Perry was saying earlier and just getting that historical background because it is like like he mentioned, this is redlining. This is this is oppression. This is all of those things. And when you look in this neighborhood, you see the symptoms of that. The reason that there hasn't been grocery stores over here or any development over here is because um, grocery stores or developments businesses um, they tend to go where they like we mentioned earlier. They feel like they are going to receive a profit, right? So um, it kind of directly speaks to what the value of the community is assumed to be. Mind you, a lot of the investment over here, because it's not that there hasn't been any investment. There's Mm -hmm. plenty of gas stations. There's plenty of liquor stores. There's plenty of those over here. Um, It's not that there hasn't been any sort of development. But the the intentional investment into this community and into the health and well-being of this community, it cannot just come from putting up a building. It has to be something that that we have to try to edify the the members that live over here. We have to talk to them. We have to empower them. And that is what I specifically do here at our urban farm. Yeah, I kind of wonder, you know, I don't live in a food desert. I live quite a far a distance away from any supermarket, though. But I don't necessarily buy a lot of vegetables either. And the things you're talking about are growing vegetables. You know, I, I, I wonder, do you wonder, I guess, even if you do create this great uh, farming cooperative, if people will come to buy the foods that you grow? Oh, I, I have no doubt. I have absolutely no doubt. Um, I'm very, very excited. One thing about this project, and again, when you want to really edify people, because that's what this comes down to. It's not about anything other than understanding and, and letting the members of this community know that they are valued, they are loved, they are appreciated, and that we have heart connected to this work. Like you were twice as likely to pull a neighborhood out of poverty if you invest in the agricultural sector. This project is not about just food insecurity. It is about resilience. It is about revitalization. It is about um, liberation of oppressed peoples and making sure that we, we maintain this relationship and this connection with nature so that we can we can all understand that the very significant role that we play so for me i have no doubt i i sure. have absolutely no doubt mainly because um as you know growing food here since 2017 i don't mean to honk my own horn but it's delicious i grow very very good food it is what? it will ruin you i'm almost ruined from grocery stores and i often <laughs> tell people 
that if all you've ever had is a grocery store yeah. tomato, then you've never had a real tomato. Well, well, Cheyenne, will it be cheaper? Oh, yes. Yes. We're definitely working on um, getting, first of all, um, our SNAP um, application process, mm-hmm. which will allow us to accept SNAP benefits, as well as all the other programs that we can um, make sure that we accept here at this location. And we are working on developing a sliding scale for not only the 89106, which has consistently held the highest rates of food insecurity in Clark County, but all of the surrounding uh, zip codes as well. So people from all over can come and patronize this beautiful grocery store that we are building, the small grocer, but small but mighty, just like a Bodo. Um, And what they contribute will be directly invested into maintaining the longevity of this project. I grow everything from seed. So already there's kind of like um, a price difference that's correlated with that because the cost of seeds are way different from transplants, for example. So having that and then also it's not just, again, about being able to produce this food. It's about educating individuals who come here, who come to this very, 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 very special plot of land that we have and letting them know that there's power behind it. Not Um, only in being able to ensure that their family never goes hungry because there there is a level of power behind that, but also in the connections to their relationships with food. Like it's a really, really powerful place to be. I can really hear your passion for this project. It sounds like a great one. And uh, again, that is Cheyenne Kyle. She's also here with Tamika Henry. They're both with Obodo Collective, which is a, uh, it's a nonprofit organization that's bringing urban farm to the historic west side district that's what we're talking about the the district for a long time has been a food desert there are many many efforts now to change that and i want to get into the question why that's all happening right now but first i want to get to some of these calls paul from las vegas welcome to the program hey thanks for having me sure go ahead so i had a i had a question for the panelists uh cedric and william if they're i think they're still on the call uh, Eric West, in regards to the three-story hydroponic uh, building that they are building out, um, what is the anticipated volume um, annually, and how what does that ratio look like in regards to local citizens that live in that food desert? Um, because from my experience, uh, Ponics Farms, we're actually a hydroponic manufacturing uh, builder and, and operator, currently in Atlanta, Georgia. We spoke on the Smart City Expo at Keisha Bottoms, um, and we are currently wrapping up our $30 million raise to build out um, our, our hydroponic farming facility in Atlanta. And on top of that, we actually just secured um, a USADA grant um, for $5 million. And what we've learned is that no, one, no single brand, no matter what district you may live in in Atlanta, um, the issue and the need um, is so is so large that we as a community of farmers, builders, operators um, need to address this unilaterally uh, versus leaning on one provider. Because from what I've learned, um, no single you know building three stories, no matter if it's fifty thousand square foot, hundred thousand square foot, can efficiently um, not only distribute the produce but actually nourish and grow uh, community-sponsored agriculture, which the program in the community can thrive off of, which will kind of minimize that that level of a food debt. 
That, that is an interesting point of view. I guess Paul and uh, the note here says managing partner of Ponic Farms obviously has some experience with this, and, and Cedric Career, councilman, he's basically saying this isn't, uh, this, there's no silver bullet solution to this. One project is not going to do it. Well, of course, and I mentioned that earlier, that there's no silver bullet to address the issues of the revitalization of the entire historic West Side, right? Workforce development is one aspect of it, but, and getting our community healthier, I think, is the ultimate goal, and that's going to tie into our um, uh, medical outreach facility that we're looking to build over on uh, Jackson and D Street. Uh, we're working with Roseman University right now for uh, going out into the community, knocking on doors, talking to our neighbors and, and letting them know that we're here and asking them what it takes to be healthier. So the food is one aspect of it, but it's not the total aspect of it. Um, you know, our containers that we have now, they are going to produce about eight tons of produce each. And uh, my, each container is equivalent to three and a half acres of flat farming each. I mean, obviously, with phase three, we're going to quadruple that amount with our four or five story hydroponic uh, growth facility. But he's right. And look, we, we're jumping into this, right? Uh, I'm not saying we're the experts at this, but we realize that there is an issue and we're doing our best to address it. We also received a grant from the White House, uh, directly from the White House. We were only one of 13 cities to receive this grant called Local Places, uh, Local Foods, where we are receiving technical support for this. And so we're gonna grow and work into this, uh, but we know that this is just one aspect of the entire plan to get our community healthy and better. And maybe one of you two can uh, answer this next question. You know, everybody knows that if people don't eat healthily, They'll eat what's cheap, easy, and unhealthy fast food. We all do it. Even if we have access to healthy food, every one of us has been to a fast food restaurant. In yep. fact, uh, I'll admit I, I've gone a couple of times this uh, last week. <laughs> but I, I wonder if you can look at this whole, uh, you know, at the 30,000-foot level, look at it from the view of a taxpayer. If people are eating poorly, they're going to be more unhealthy. They're going to require mm-hmm. medical care. And if they can't foot the bill, and again, we were talking about this being a poverty-stricken area, that will often fall on taxpayers to cover those bills, say, at University Medical Center. In that regard, is it just simply good public policy to ensure access to healthy food in a given area? Well, I think that healthy food, yes, there's no doubt about it. But also, what I mentioned was our work, was our uh, medical and wellness facility we're looking to, to uh, build. Yeah. Look, we need to do a better job of addressing health care disparities in the community and don't wait till people get sick but do preventive maintenance so they don't get sick, which is actually going to lower the cost of health care and make our community healthier. Um, with that, you'll be able to come in, food cookie demonstrations. We'll be knocking on doors, as I said, uh, asking people to have taken their medication. We'll be uh, talking about uh, best practices in terms of food, eating, uh, exercise, all the different aspects that goes into making a community healthier. So um, that is what that facility is going to be about, as well as we're going to have a doula there for, for, for birthing um, in other aspects. Yeah, and uh, Commissioner. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and I want to thank Paul and both Paul and Kim for calling in and providing, you know, their commentary as well as their insight and things that they've witnessed. And Paul, the work that I know that he does with Ponix is phenomenal. Uh, so, but w- what we have before us is an opportunity to look holistically at how we look at every individual sector uh, within the historic West Side ecosystem, if you will, and infuse in incentives as well as resources in each 
of those areas to provide more resilience. Uh, the councilman speaking to, you know, the 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 indoor urban ag at James Gay Park. That's one aspect of it. Abodo is doing their piece of it. We've infused public dollars into Mario's to help him build uh, more capacity, which means that we're building more opportunity for the community per- to participate in-, in accessing more fresh food within his facility as well, while increasing the overall uh, workforce within his facility. And the, cl- and the county has also infused $4 million into a, a co-op uh, within the east of Las Vegas as a pilot program to determine exactly how that's going to go and how we can also, mm. after we get through that pilot, duplicate that project. And actually, in my opinion, I think we need to have regional food distribution sites. Uh, it can't be, you know, uh, situated geographically in one particular area, but we have to look at the overall heat map of the food insecurity map to see exactly where we need to put these and where we can make them easily accessible for the folks who are not only on the bus line, but folks who are not uh, as secure within their transportation as well. So we're looking holistically at it all, uh, but it's not a silver bullet. But if we work together and we communicate with all of the industry level experts, as well as the governmental entities, you know, from the federal government on down, I believe we'll make a significant impact. Yeah. That communication is key. And Professor Tyler Perry, I wonder if you have an answer to this question. When an area does overcome uh, the food desertness, uh, how does it change an area? Or how, how does it change people? Is there is there an example out there that tells you what happens when this all changes? Yeah, this is a, a good question. And I think briefly answering it, is that it, it does change the buy-in of the community. I mean, if, if a person is raised under conditions where they're constantly told and or reminded that the area they come from is worth nothing, it's a place that you need to leave, it's a place you need to get out of, then I think that it impacts a person's kind of self-perception of both themselves and the place that they're from. But once you start to see these revitalization projects and you start to see um, buildings going up, you start to see... Um, genuine concern and care going into the investments of the community, you start to see the next generation uh, or, or the rising generation buy in to, to the infrastructure and the changes. And, and it makes people want to continue to push forward. I mean, you can look at any type of social protest or movement that's occurred historically. I mean, it, it requires buy-in. It requires investment. It, it requires a person to envision that something better is on the horizon. That, and that's not just um, a dream or a myth, but it, it's a reality. And so I think that one thing we find is when you start to see successes and things continue um, is when people change the perception of the way forward. Now, the, the thing that I would say is just because something good happens one time doesn't mean that the fight's over. I mean, we've seen this with yeah. the post-civil rights era and the need to continue marching forward to envision a, a better future. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I I had a question, um, and really this is for Cedric and and Commissioner McCurdy. Cedric, I've had you on actually a couple times now, and we've been talking about the 100 plan, and it really seems like to me, and I'm a a very heavy skeptic about government plans and Mm -hmm. and how they're developed and study groups get together, and then these plans sit and gather dust for years (laughs) and years and years, but you've really been pushing this. Why is this sort of 
activity and this focus happening now? Well, I think it's happening because of the fact that we are dedicated and we're making a committed effort to execute on the plan. And you're right. Like we've had, I'm born and raised in Las Vegas. I'm born and raised in the historic West Side. I live in the house I grew up in. My wife and I chose to come back into the historic West Side to raise our, our two daughters. And we've had plenty of plans that we've come, we've talked, we've met, we've talked, we've met, we've talked, we've met, and nothing has ever happened. And so I vow not to let that happen. And I um, make sure that everybody in the city, if you look at every single department in the city of Las Vegas, from parks and rec, operation maintenance, to economic urban development, neighborhood services, they are all in line to where we're moving forward with the 100 plan. And that was vitally important to get every single person in the city of Las Vegas in tune to what's happening. And we created the plan. It's not a government plan. It is a community-driven plan that we're pushing forward. My job is to keep the foot on the pedal and keep us moving forward. We aren't gonna let obstacles get in the way, whether it's COVID, whether it's recession, um, get in the way of us executing. And I think that dedicated leadership and I think that dedicated commitment to the community is what we have now, and that's why we're finding so much success. And Commissioner McCurdy, Clark County Commission, money has a lot to do with it as well. Yes, um, as you know, as we all know, um, you know, COVID did two things for us. It allowed us to revisit our entire um, resiliency plan not only in Nevada, but all across the nation and, and, and how we interact with other uh, countries outside of this nation uh, in terms of resilience. But it also uh, allowed for us to focus on the areas of highest need for the communities in which we represent. And due to the fact that you know, we were going through a pandemic, we were able to be infused uh, by our federal government with uh, a plethora of dollars geared towards certain areas. And I did speak to the $4 billion that Nevada received. I believe that you're seeing this type of energy and momentum be is simply due to the fact that we have so much money infused into our economy and we're utilizing those dollars by the mandate that is said within the passage of the law that it has to be infused into in low-income census tracts, and that's exactly what we're doing, and that's what we've been and able that, to do. So. And that is all the time I have. So, sorry, County Commissioner William McCurdy, Las Vegas City Councilman Cedric Kerr, UNLV Assistant Professor Tyler Perry, Cheyenne Kyle, and Tamika Henry from Obado Collective, and thanks to those who called.